0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Cross-Functional and Friendly Podcast. My name is Nikita Miller, and I'm currently Head of Product Management at The Knot Worldwide. I'm here with Stella Garber and Kristen Haybach to talk about all things tech and startups, leadership, marketing, product and sales, and just life in general. Hi,
1: folks. My name is Stella Garber, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. I met Nikita and Kristen when we all worked together at Trello, where I led marketing. Over to you, Kristen.
2: Hi, I'm Kristen Hayback, and I'm currently the president and COO at Shogun. Today, we're going to talk about what the heck is going on in the markets and how that's affecting startups and VC. This topic came from some of the conversations I've been having at work, where a lot of people have been kind of asking me questions about what's going on and how that impacts us. For folks who don't know, Shogun is a Series C, so that's kind of where we're at in in the funding journey. And so a lot of questions from people about what the heck is kind of going on in the space. So we're just going to riff the three of us, I think, on this topic a little bit.
1: And I'll share, I think my perspective, I can share as an LP in a lot of different funds and sort of what the funds are saying and seeing, as well as an early stage tech angel investor. This is certainly something that everybody's talking about right now. So I hope uh, this conversation is very timely.
2: Let's just do funding 101 first. Stella, you want to... You want to walk through a little bit high level of just like, how does venture capital get raised? How does it get deployed? Sure. The basics.
1: Okay. So tell me if I get too detailed. (laughs) So first of all, very, very few companies raise venture capital. Only should be high growth tech companies. I think it's something like less than 2% of all companies uh, raise venture capital. I will have to double check that stat. But anyways, so- Lots of different institutions like pension funds and state funds and endowments and Lots of places want to have access to the wealth creation, growth opportunities that exist in uh, technology. And so venture capital as an asset class is a place where that can happen. So these venture capital firms are led by general partners who also have skin in the game, so to speak. They create funds. The funds have a life cycle of about seven to 10 years from raising to deploying to Uh, then having distributions, which means that companies are sold or go public, have some sort of liquidity event. So um, these general partners decide to raise a fund and they go out and they find limited partners. And that's where these institutions come in. So limited partners or LPs are the people and institutions who invest in venture capital funds. Um, Limited partners, as I said, can be institutions. It can also be individuals like Kristen, I think you're an LP in some funds. I'm an LP in some funds. Nikita's an LP in some funds. And funds tend to have a thesis. So some are healthcare oriented, some are uh, so sector oriented, cybersecurity or crypto or consumer or whatever. And some are stage oriented. So super early stage seed, pre-seed, some are growth stage, some are pre-IPO. And so they, you make a commitment as a limited partner to a fund. And so let's say you commit, I don't know, let's say $100,000 just for the sake of simplicity, although that is probably on the low end of it's not probably that is on the low end of (laughs) how much you would commit to uh, a venture capital fund you would then your capital gets called which means that you don't give all of that money at once you give it over time usually on a quarterly basis but it can be more frequent than that um when the fund decides, when the GPs decide to make investments. So that can be really fast. It can also be very slow. It sort of depends on what's going on in the market. But in general, a lot of capital gets deployed in the first three or four years of the fund. And then there's a growth phase, which is like maybe years four to seven. And then after that, seven to 10 and beyond is when you would expect distribution. So that's when you get. Uh, your money back and more, hopefully, if the GPs have done their job and, and made good investments. And I will just end by saying that how do these GPs make money? Well, they charge uh, an annual fee, which is usually 2%. That's the, I would say the standard, 2% of all of the capital that is called. And they also make money on carry, which is a percentage of however much money, however much money gets made when a company is sold or there's some sort of liquidity event. All right, Kristen, Nikita, did what I miss? I'm sure I missed a bunch of stuff because I did not practice that.
2: I think I think the big thing, right, is that you think of a, a VC as having like all this money, but it's not like sitting in the bank for them, right? They have to go and make like you said, these calls to the LP. So they have to send out and say like Hey, you committed. Like you said, you committed 100 grand. 25k is due, right? And so I think the big thing to to kind of talk about now, right, is that they have to make these calls. And when funding starts to get tight like this, it and we can talk about why, but it potentially means that they start to get cautious about making the calls, right? They start to think about making those calls out to the LPs. It becomes something because it's not like, it's not like go put your ATM card in and VC fund come out. Like They're asking people to pay the money they committed to during this process.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good, really important point because a lot of people think, oh, venture capital is just free money. Well, actually, GPs have a fiduciary responsibility to themselves and as well as uh, their LPs. And there's a lot of work that goes into being a venture capitalist if you're doing it right. There's a ton of diligence. There's a ton of reporting that you have to do. Like on a quarterly basis, at least when you're an LP, you're hearing about the performance of all of the funds as well as all of the portfolio companies. Companies in it. So these people, these venture capitalists who invest money, there is a huge expectation that they're going to, they expect to make money on these investments. And so like Kristen was saying, it really makes sense in this environment where nobody knows what the heck is going on and how long it's going to be, that people are much more cautious because their goal is to make money for their yeah. investors.
0: I mean, there's, there's a little bit of a connection there, though, because I think a lot of what we're seeing now in the public markets does go back to a lot of what was happening in venture, especially late stage venture. Right. So like the markets are shifting, there's a lot going on in the world. Folks are being more or less cautious for all these different reasons. But we're also seeing what the market, from my perspective, correcting itself in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of the companies that were in these late stages, a lot of the companies that were that IPO'd were insanely overvalued and overpriced. And now I think there's a bit of a reckoning in in the markets and in VC land and early stage companies are starting to feel some of that. Yes. Yeah,
2: so let's let's talk about what how the valuation works. Maybe that's a good segue to it because you kind of talked about things being overvalued. <laughs> so basically, what happens, right? And you guys correct me. I'll give my 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 basic understanding of this, which is that when you go in and to make an investment, whether it's a seed round, an A round, a B round, whatever it might be, right? Basically, what happens is you kind of look at what the company is. Generating in revenue. And then oftentimes you look ahead to what the company is expecting to generate in revenue and you put a multiple onto it, right? Anywhere kind of between 10, what we had been seeing, right? Which is like some companies at like 30 plus valuations. And that's where when you see announcements of like somebody raised $10 million on a $150 million valuation, that's where that comes from. But even in the public markets where the companies are not doing venture capital, Oftentimes, the stock is trading at several multiples ahead of what the company is reporting as part of their earnings and their quarterly earnings calls and the projections that they have. And so, some folks have, you know, pretty moderate valuations where it's kind of more on that like 10 times multiple, five times multiple, whatever it might be. And some are at this like really high multiple. And so right now, a lot of what you're saying kind of in the markets is the market is saying that multiple feels aggressive. Maybe this stock shouldn't be $500. And so you start seeing people selling. And that's where then now some stocks have taken 50, 60% haircuts on where they were to kind of reflect now what they think the valuation of that stock is going forward.
1: Yeah. I would just add two quick things. So in the public markets, the value of a company is based on what what investors are willing to pay and all the information is public. It's just a market. Like when you're buying a house, yeah, how much it's is supply that how it's worth? Supply, yeah, supply and, right, demand. Yep. and the, the difference is that in the private market, there's not as much information available, right? Because companies don't have to disclose any of this information. And so the way that companies get valued is in a similar way. When a company goes out to raise money, they look at, you know, they look at a bunch of data, like Kristen was saying, their competitors, but it's also how much is How much are funds willing to give you? And so it's really just, again, about this market. And so that's why you're seeing things slow down because nobody really knows what these companies are worth. And then the second thing, and I don't know how macro we want to get with this, but a lot of the growth, a lot of the, the slowdown in growth has to do with the Fed's interest rate policy mm-hmm. and the fact that investing in companies that are going to be making money in the future isn't as attractive when money is going to be worth more today than it is tomorrow. So that's there's all of the like macro stuff, obviously, that really informs and trickles down to everything.
2: Right. So I think the question, you know, I don't know if you guys are are hearing this in in your worlds right now, but certainly what I'm what I'm hearing is this heavy push from boards, from venture seats on boards, right? And so just to kind of do a quick like usually your board on a in a private company is kind of composed of the VCs who invested in you and sometimes they have board seats, sometimes they're board observers and they can they can observe but they don't have a vote, but generally like you know, if so and so fund invest that ten million at the one hundred and fifty million dollar valuation, they'll probably take a seat or at least get an observer seat. And then maybe there is what I'm doing, which is like an independent board seat, which is you know the company kind of bring in somebody almost like as an advisor. Oftentimes, it's an operator. They don't have the same you know scope, maybe as a full board member would. They don't have as much. They don't have capital probably at the, that level with them, but they're there as like an advisor seat. And so what I'm hearing a lot is everyone's. Kind of getting this spot even with healthy companies like conserve your capital conserve your capital because we think it's going to be harder for you to raise capital in the next couple of years because potentially the next couple of years because of everything we just talked about just now right which is calling the lps Mm -hmm. the funds level how they're responsible to to create growth, obviously, the macroeconomics outside in the wider public market. And so there's a lot of like conserved capital. And I think the other thing that sometimes gets missed, which we didn't talk about, which is, I don't know, the stat, I'll make one up, but I would say like, I don't know, 99% of venture backed startups are not profitable. Like they are losing money. That's part of the deal, right? Which is that you're giving extra capital in so that they can... Burn, which would be to like spend more than they're making, so that they can trade off for high growth at the expense of being bootstrapped. Which would be more like running it in a generally profitable manner. Not everybody, not everyone, obviously. Sometimes they're just taking it as secondary, and they're reselling their shares privately. But like for the most part, they're burning, right? Like that's that's generally what we assume, right? So they're they're spending more money than they're making ultimately.
1: Because they're investing in their growth. That's that's why, you know, everyone's trying to, everyone wants the company to grow in value. So that's that's why.
2: Right. So that's the trade-off right now, right? Which is that you, what we're hearing is conserve your capital because it's going to be harder to raise in the future. And they're saying that because a lot of companies are burning at rates that potentially would mean that they'd be running out of capital in the next 12 to 24 years months and the fundraising market potentially isn't there for them which means they would have to do potentially a down round which would be raised at a lower valuation than they've raised before or do other things that are not as optimal for them and so they're saying hey conserve your capital and so that's where i think we're getting to the spot where you're starting to see a lot of the hiring freezes and the layoffs and stuff like that in private space
0: I think part of that is also the because of the slowdown or pause in funding that a lot of earlier stage companies are likely to see over the next couple of years, they also now have to start making making, real or different kinds of trade-offs, right, when they think about growth. So, So if the early stage investors are now thinking about what later stage investors want to see, given what's going on in the world, then they're probably going to start focusing more on their business model. Right. Right, which is not necessarily what a lot of early stage companies do. Right, when they think about growth, they're growing the team, they're growing the product, they're growing user base, not necessarily kind of figuring out or refining their business model. So, I think, I think earlier stage companies will probably have to start sorting out some of those, you know, questions much sooner than they probably did five years ago.
1: Yeah, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of times, like venture back companies don't fail because they have a bad product or a bad team. It's because they just run out of money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe in this frothier environment, companies that shouldn't have raised because they shouldn't be able to raise because they weren't strong businesses, like Nikita was saying, or they weren't focused on generating revenue. Now it's going to weed out a lot of those companies, the tougher environment. And so, yeah, that's just sort of the model yeah. Um, yeah. The toughest, will the strongest, and the most operationally savvy will survive.
2: Right. Right. So you're having this balance, right? Of like, still probably burning capital. I don't think everyone's saying like, "Hey, let's all get ourselves profitable." But they're they're you know maybe trying to get their burn down from you know a half a million dollars a month to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a month or whatever it is, right? They're trying to kind of strike that balance between getting the business in a state where it can go longer, where some of those magic metrics about efficiency and stuff start to at least look better, but still grow because you also don't want to cap the business ultimately as it's trying to grow. And I
0: think you'll probably start, you know, some of the stuff we've been talking about this conversation between Product, marketing, product, go-to-market, sales. Yeah. So like how do we start prioritizing what what the now limited kind of resources that a lot of the companies have? I think those conversations are probably going to get really intense at these companies. Right. Because
2: I think a lot of times the answer has been, well, we have so many things we want to do, so let's just hire more people, like double the product team, double the yeah. sales people. And it's like, that's not going to be the answer that a lot of these folks can Give in the next couple of months, potentially.
1: It's not all bad, too. Like, I've, you know, I get monthly updates from all of my portfolio companies. Many of them are doing really, really well, and many of them are hiring aggressively. They're certainly reevaluating, like, a lot of the hires, but at the same time, you know, it's been a really tough climate for startups to hire because salaries and equity from these later stage companies have been so generous. So I feel like finally now there might be an opportunity where these companies that are really great, but have just, you know, just have struggled in this environment where there's been so little little (laughs)
0: supply. Yeah, I think that that's a question that I think is really interesting right now, because what we've seen in the past year hiring in tech, like it's been great. Those no. streets have been rough, <laughs> it's been yeah. like rough on those streets to figure out how to hire people. The comp equity from the later stage companies were so inflated that it was really yeah. hard for earlier stage companies or just like regular growth phased companies and- to hire and and that's changing.
1: Well, and right? also it sort of sucks if you're a person who has taken a job at one of these companies in yeah. the last couple of years, like your compensation is not- Your a perspective on reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. Just, just to double click or- ex- oh, I hate that expression. I don't know why you can <laughs> <laughs> Let's say half of your compensation came from stock. In yeah. America. All of a sudden when the stock is down 60%, that means your compensation isn't, your package isn't looking like- what it was when you signed. So right, right. yeah, that's the opportunity I think for for startups that are serious yeah. and you know hiring. I would agree with that. I mean, I, there
2: I know several people right now who are at various public companies who um, are finally going to leave to to try something new because, in part, the stocks were just going up for so long in a way that it just didn't make sense for them to take that risk and now it's like well my grant from uh november is worth 60 40 percent of what it was worth before so like might as well try something new in this moment so yeah i mean it's definitely not all bad there's a ton of of opportunity that's that's going on but yeah
0: i i agree i think there's a lot of there's a ton of opportunity in the phases one of the like for me, one of the hot, hot takes is part of me has been wondering for years. I was like, where are these valuations coming from? Like, what yeah. are all these companies that are IPOing without like real business model at like multiples that make no sense? Like there, a lot of them weren't even tech companies, you know? So I think there's like, there is a little bit of a reckoning about what's been going on in late stage in quotations, tech companies and what it's done to inflate the market in a lot of ways. So So there's a way in which I'm like, yeah, like the valuations shouldn't have been that high when you're not actually making money and you're not actually providing the value that you claim to. I Uh, I think
2: think think the other thing just to highlight that I think a ton of people don't know that maybe everyone, our audience knows, but a ton of people I found don't know is like people be like, oh, the exit is to go public and then you're profitable. And it's like, do you know, there's like a ton of like a lot of public companies that are not actually profitable. You do understand that too, right?
1: I think my hot take is that, and maybe because I'm an an internal optimist, it's like I feel like a lot of these really great companies have gotten lumped in with the bad ones and have gotten (laughs) a bad rep. So- I think it's a great buying opportunity right now. This is, yep. I'm sure I'm, hopefully I'm right, but I probably won't be. And <laughs> it'll be like. <laughs> right on some of them. <laughs> yeah. Disclaimer, this is not financial advice. No, yeah, not yeah. at all. <laughs> part no of yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, some of the stocks have fallen. Some of these public companies have just gotten unfairly shellacked. To yeah. The, yeah. To yeah, 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 absolutely. So, but, but, you know, to the most part, it again, it's a market. Yeah. So it's whatever people are willing to pay. So.
0: Right. Let's, and let's, uh, I agree that there's like, yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, I think I agree that there's a lot of opportunity. And also, I'm also super optimistic. Yeah, right. I'm I optimistic think that tough. like, there are corrections for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. And then like, super you cool. know, we'll come back.
2: I don't think this is I mean, listen, I also am not a financial analyst. So like, take it in stride. But like, I worked in i i was in tech selling to financial services during the kind of oh yeah six oh
0: eight like oh it doesn't yeah. feel
2: like that you know what i mean like it it doesn't like that i just i remember calling up banks to try and sell software and they were like the bank's gone like you know what i mean like and things were shuddering at a rate that's like so who knows like I, none of us know but like i don't think it feels like it did
1: then no um We've also just come out of this crazy two-year, once-in-a-lifetime yeah, right. pandemic, and there's been a lot of behavioral changes yeah. and uh things that are still getting regulated, like the the weirdness, the inflation. A lot of that has to do with all of this, the craziness that has been going on. So I think things will start to level off. But sorry, Kristen, you were going to say something.
2: No, no, I was gonna, I was gonna say my hot take, which is a slightly different hot take. But I, I was going to talk about. I think there is this level of like taking capital whenever you take capital is a little bit of a monkey's paw situation, you know what I mean? Where you have to be careful what you wish for. And I think there are a lot of first-time founders who don't fully understand, you know, what they're getting into and they celebrate the raise at these high valuations as if that itself is an exit. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations where I've had to explain to people, I was like, you do understand that if you raise." at that multiple, you have to get yourself to that multiple or above to raise again with like another, like better valuation or for your stock to be worth more than that. And I think there has been a lot, especially like maybe not founders, but certainly like, Early employees who've never been in startups before who see the raises and they're like, "We're killing it! We're doing great! We raised a hundred million on this and this and this." And it's like there is an expectation that comes with that. There is like venture; they're not giving you that capital because they're your friend. Like they are expecting that capital to be returned. And and so I think that is a piece that's missing. So when people are like, "Hey, what's going on?" like all this money was in the bank. Why are there layoffs and stuff like that happening? And it's like, this is a big part of it, right? Like that money has to be returned at some point, or you have to get a higher valuation than what you raised at. Like the raise itself is not the exit. And I think like a ton of people don't seem to understand that unless you got it all in secondary and you sold, like the raise itself is not the exit for the company. Like you have to keep going from that point. You have to keep the company afloat from that point.
1: Yeah, I've definitely. It's interesting. I've been a founder and now as an investor, it's such a different perspective. And I think people would do well to think about the fact that if a company is, you know, if if a fund is giving you money, they're expecting a, a big return from that money. Yeah. So, and you know, those are the goal. The valuation is just the goalpost that you set Mm -hmm. and they're going to keep you accountable to that because at the end of the day, the fund is a business itself and they need to make money and they are being held accountable by their LPs going back, I guess, full circles to the beginning. And what they want to do is they want to go back and raise a bigger fund because they make money on fees and carry and they don't get to do that. If they lose all of
0: their investors' mm-hmm. money. Right. That's right. That reminded me of something that I wanted to chat about earlier, which is like when we're talking about recruiting and hiring and this transition, a lot of people are changing jobs. Now they're wondering. I would say the one <laughs> one plug I'd make for folks that are still thinking that through is to do your own diligence, mm-hmm. like venture capitalists mm-hmm. or Fine. they as you said Stella they're also had to make money like there's a business model for them as businesses but like as an individual that's deciding whether or not to join a startup or a particular phase like you have to do your own diligence and I think some of what we've seen in the past couple of years is I think we like in some ways as as an industry relied on venture capital another hot take to do this diligence yes yeah. And they were not doing a lot of this diligence in the way that they probably should have. So like as an individual, mm-hmm. like you have to do a lot of that diligence for yourself. Like don't take it yeah. for granted that just because a company has gotten a lot of funding, that's kind of where you should go.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? Like, and what's the stat? I mean, maybe, maybe Stella, you know, we can look it up. But it's like the the majority of investments are not, don't have profitable exits for the funds, right? They, they make it on like, you know, a handful or maybe 50%. It's not, it's not like just, it's not like just because Andreessen gave you a Series A means you've been king made.
1: No, usually the model, the way the model works is that they expect like huge outsized returns from one or two companies. And then, you know, if a fund is, let's say, investing in 10 companies, there will be like one or two companies that fail, a handful of companies that do pretty well, and the two that are, you know, grand slams. I don't, that's a sports thing, whatever. (laughs) But I I will say that when the the fund invests, their expectation is that every single company in that fund has the potential to meet the grand slam. Right. So right. there and but the reality is that like statistically it ends up being more like what I said. So,
2: yeah. Yeah. And yeah. but I think that's really important because I think it's like there They're also making a lot of bets. They're trying to make as intelligent of bets as they can make, but they're making a lot of bets. And with the market, the way it has been over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of pressure, right? And there's, there's these players like Tiger and stuff who blow in, give crazy valuations and people are trying to like be competitive in that situation. And there may be, not doing as much due diligence as they would have done, or they're willing to give it at a higher multiple than maybe they would have before. And so back to your point, Nikita, which is like, don't just assume because it's a cat of BC's name as a lead investor on a round, that that means like this company's got all their shit figured out. And it's going to be like, It's going to be like, all I got to do is plug into the machine and the machine's going to roll till I see my IPO. Because like, that is not a guarantee. You are still heading into a fairly risky endeavor, heading into a startup, which is the thing I love about startups. But I have just come to realize how many people do not realize that they are coming into something that is like being formed still is not fully formed yet, necessarily. Yeah.
1: That's why I'll add on to what Nikita said before about how you should do your own diligence. At the end of the day, you should also do stuff that you're passionate about and work with people who share your values such that if things work out, then awesome, you've made some money on a liquidity event. But if not, then you still feel great because you're doing a job that you love with people you respect and making an impact in the world.
2: Yeah, that's what I... I've I've really emphasized that a lot, which is like just if nothing else, make sure you love the people you're solving the hard problems with. Because wherever you hop to, it's going to be a hard problem, but at least enjoy who you're doing it with. So. What's the what's the due diligence you would do though, Nikita? Like, what what would you ask? <laughs> I have some. Um, like, let's yeah, maybe let's all um, share what it is because I wish someone had told me to ask
0: <laughs> I always ask about about numbers, users, usage, activity. I do not want percentages. I want like absolute numbers. Yeah. Because yeah. often these growth rates are just. Right. We got kind of seven yeah, yeah, so like, so like, hundred and fifty percent growth. Yeah, we're starting at a hundred, and that's <laughs> not like that's not a make or break because you know, at early stage company, like there isn't that much. But you kind of, I personally want to go in knowing exactly like what numbers are we working with in terms of users, in terms of adoption, in terms of revenue. I want, I personally want to know like you don't have to have figured out the business model. That's perfectly fine. But I really want to know that someone is really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right.
1: That's yep. That's yeah. great. I'll add that. Uh, going in as an executive, I feel very comfortable asking about what the valuation was at the last round mm-hmm. and then what the revenue is and making sure that that feels right to me. I was interviewing last year at a handful of these later stage companies because I thought, hey, maybe I should be a CMO. And that was one thing that Really stuck out to me with, and I'm so glad that I trusted my gut because fast um, forward, (laughs) this does not make any Any sense. sense. Yeah,
2: (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. Yeah,
1: and the reason is because, again, as an executive, a huge part of your compensation package is dependent on on how well the company does, and you're sort of setting yourself up for failure if the value, if the goalposts are, are too far away.
2: Like, I think you should understand what the valuations have been. You should understand how much money's in the bank, what the current burn is. I think those ones are all generally important. You know, I don't know if you need to know. I mean, you should know before you accept. Like, what's the what's your strike going to be? What's that four hundred nine A valuation going to be? Like, are you going to even, you know. Uh, is that valuation so high that like your equity is going to be worth anything? Can you even afford to exercise it if you leave? Like those kind of things are really important, I think. But yeah, I think those are some of the big ones. I mean, all and all the things you talked about, like what's your net dollar retention? What's your, like all that stuff where it's like those indicators of the health of the business.
0: Yeah. And I think we've talked about this before, but I've, as someone who who has always optimized for like the package, yeah. <laughs> it is important to me in a lot of ways. The, most important thing is like, do you want to work with these people? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like That's really right. like, do you, yeah. is is this the team that you want to take a chance with? Because it is risky, right. In a lot of ways. So like knowing that, and I think the only way you know that is to have some more conversations. Like, you know, uh, when, one of the things I've started recently, especially as an executive in these, like if there are co-founders, I want to do a working session yeah. with both co-founders. I want mm-hmm. to see what that dynamic is like.
1: Yeah. I also think, you know, I've always, I think that when you're getting recruited into a company or you're going through that process, it's a sales process. And so two things that I care about, number one, what are the values? Are they living those values? And also I I always want to talk to someone who is not part of that recruiting process. So I'll try to find someone who is at the company who can tell me like, whether the show that is being being put on is honest, and there have been definitely times when the people, the people who work at the company who are not part of the interview process, tell a very different story about the culture and about yeah. um, the founder dynamics and things that, rather than what's sort of being shown to you as a candidate, they they open the kimono, yeah. if you will.
2: Yeah, I think that I think the big my my big takeaway to some extent with all of this though is that you can't optimize for zero risk. You know what I mean? Like I think all of our questions of what you should ask are really good. And and I think you should ask those things. I also think you can't beat yourself up if you make a bad move. You know what I mean? Like you can do all the research in the world and still get in and realize it's a total storm. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you got to get out. And I think you can also be somewhere where it's going really well and they hit a plateau in the business and they don't know how to pivot it and that's going to happen. I think you can pick to go to work at a public company and you can see a ton of these public mm-hmm. companies that have had to do layoffs. You can pick to go to a private company and see the same thing. And so I think your point even even more is even more pointed when you think about that, right? Which is that like I've heard people say like, oh, I thought if we raised all this, we were going to be so stable, or I thought this or that like at various places or wherever they are, when they go to leave. And it's like, you can, I don't think you can optimize for that. You know what I mean? Like, like you said, like find a place that you can live the values out, find a place you think it's a fun challenge to unlock. Hopefully you like unlocking it with those people, because if you're optimizing for like, uh, this isn't going to, not work out like this is a sure it's just there's nothing that's a sure thing you know yeah
1: you also have to be comfortable with the risk that you're taking and that's why totally. a lot of times when i talk to folks who are like oh should i work at a startup i'm like well what's your risk tolerance and often the your risk tolerance will correlate with what stage of a company you should be looking at so yeah yep. that's also something to consider
2: well i think that was some really good pieces of Advice and hopefully a good primer for folks who are just kind of curious what's going on, at least how we're seeing it, and maybe some of the chats that are happening. I think will remains to be seen how long it lasts. This has been the Cross Functional and Friendly Podcast. Listen to our other episodes at crossfunctionalpodcast.com, where we talk all things tech and oftentimes interview fabulous humans. You can follow us on Twitter at X functional pod. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks, all.